And now here's another timely yet timeless word from the Word of God from one of our services at First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. We're actually going to be looking at uh, perhaps two passages that many would not take to go together. However, upon closer examination, we'll see that actually uh, they do. The triumphal entry of Jesus and Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. Um, Me and Dave and Sarah a couple weeks ago, we were trying to figure out uh, what passage to uh, or what the passage would look like coming to this week, and we were we came to the triumphal entry, and we looked at it and said, you know, this we we just had Easter not too long ago, maybe we could skip over it. Uh, however, we we were verse by verse here at First Baptist, and so we said, no, this is this is what's the next verse. It comes right after the ten minus passage. It, it, it ties directly into that. We got to go uh, to the next one, uh, and I'm, I'm I'm grateful that Dave let me preach this passage, um, mainly because lately he's been giving me. T- Tough ones, and so I appreciate him throwing me a, a softball. I'm saying that because they're watching right now, so uh, uh, I got to throw a dig in there since he can't reply. Uh, but anyway, uh, so we're going to be looking at that's right. Uh, we're going to be looking at the triumphal entry and Jesus weeping. And, and really, when we look at these two passages, there's one thing that we see right off the bat, and that is that Jesus comes in as the King. There is no denying Jesus' rightful place, especially after last week talking about the parable of the ten minas. So if you remember right, uh, the king gives his servants ten minas and tells them to spend it wisely uh, so that way the minas will multiply. And, and, and we see that there are really three categories of servants came back to him. Uh, the two I really want to talk about are the ones that one invested wisely, and because of that the king blessed them by putting them in authority over various lands. And then you had the, the others that were so scared they got the king wrong. They said that the king was, was evil. They were scared of the wrath of the king that they just kind of uh, put it away, put it in under a pillow to make sure that it was safe so that way they would not have anything worse to come to them. And, and, and the king then punishes them for, for their faithlessness, uh, for them uh, not obeying the command of the king. And then directly after that, we get to the triumphal entry of Jesus. And so uh, a lot of times when we think about a king coming into his capital city, right, we think of a lot of pomp and circumstance, right? You think of like the kings of England, uh, right, riding in on white horses or or Queen Elizabeth riding in on white horses. If you ever get to watch the the Queen's birthday march thing, she always rides a white horse. Uh, You think of uh, uh, Inauguration Day, right, with the various parades that take place in D.C., right? We, We also like our kings and our, our rulers to be someone who has a little bit of a, a, a determination, right? They just have that that extra, you know, uh, whatever it is, characteristic that just causes people to to listen to whatever it is they have to say. Uh, when I look at this passage, I'm, I'm, I'm one, I'm someone who likes to laugh, so I love comedies. One of my favorite comedies is a show called The Office. And in the office, there are two characters who, some of y'all laughing, y'all, y'all, y'all like it too. There are two characters who are constantly getting at one another. And that is a character named Dwight and a character named Jim. Now, Jim likes to play a lot of pranks and hijinks against Dwight. I don't know why I would like a character like that. Um, but, uh, but Jim is always doing some sort of prank on Dwight. And Dwight really probably belongs more in the 18th century than he does in modern day times. But Dwight is a great salesman. And so Dwight 
might have, in one episode, get salesman of the year. Uh, and so because of that, he has to go to a conference where he has to speak to a large crowd. And Dwight is petrified of this fact. And so Jim decides, I'm going to play him a prank. And so he gives Dwight a CD of various speeches that have been said before. And he tells us that you need to listen to these leaders. Lots of people follow these leaders. And you really should just uh, copy their diction in order to you know, be able to get drawn in the crowd. The CD that he gives them are 30 of the greatest dictators and fascists speeches of all time. And so here Dwight is listening in his free time to Mussolini and all these guys give you know, speeches. And so it comes time for the speech, right? And Dwight gets up there and he's nervous and, and then all of a sudden he starts in. And I mean, he goes full dictator, fascist thing. This is a, a salesman of Pennsylvania. We must conquer our land and be able to sell to everyone. And everybody's just cheering, you know, standing up, giving him a, you know, a round of applause, you know, and, and everybody's just hooping and hollering in the crowd, right? Because he's given this, this big diction, this, this big, this big pomp and circumstance speech, and everybody is just, you know, crowding around him, even though what he's saying is absolutely nonsense. But really, when we think of kings, we think of that, right? Someone who can get up and command an entire room with their voice. However, when we look at this passage, we see that here comes the righteous king, but he doesn't come with pomp and circumstance. He doesn't bring this upon himself. Instead, we see that he comes with humility. And really, there are two reactions to this king that we must take a look at. The first reaction we will see in the triumphal entry is what does a disciple look like? What is the response of a disciple to the rightful king? And then when we look at the passage of Jesus weeping over Jerusalem, we will also look at and see what the consequences of rejecting the rightful king is. So today we're going to ask the question, which one are you? Are you someone who properly responds like the disciples, or are you someone who completely and utterly rejects Jesus and therefore takes the consequences of that? Now, I know we live in the Bible Belt. And because of that, nominally, we all probably would say the former rather than the latter. But we really need to search deep in ourselves and see, am I truly responding to Jesus correctly? And if not, I must repent. We must repent. We must be a people of repentance. And so as we look at the triumphal entry, we're going to begin there, and then we're going to go into the weeping of, of Je- or Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. And so verse 28 says, And then he had said these things, talking about the parable of the ten minas, and he went on ahead going to Jerusalem, going up to Jerusalem. In Luke, every time you see Jesus traveling somewhere, it's always going to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is pivotal. Why? Because everything is leading to the cross. In Luke's gospel, everything is leading leading to the crucifixion. The crucifixion is central to understanding the book of Luke. And so here we see that Jesus is going up to Jerusalem. And at verse 29, we see that he, he's drawing near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet. And then he sends two disciples. So let's stop right there. So the question is, we know that he's going to Jerusalem. Now it says he's coming up to Bethpage, Bethany. Where is he at? Pretty much Bethany and Bethpage were about three miles apart from Jerusalem. So in other words, he is, Jesus is basically traveling from Panacea to Medart. 
Uh, so he's traveling from Panacea to Medar. He's, he's on the Mount Olivet, right? Going over High Hill. You know, and he's, he's coming up on, on Jerusalem. The first service laughed at that. But, you know, when you're from Panacea, that's how you gauge everything, right? And where, how far is the high school? It's about two distances from Panacea to Medar. You know, you just gauge everything that way. But he's, he's about that. He's about three miles out. And so he's three miles out. And notice what happens. It says uh, he, he was coming on the Mount called Olivet. Uh, now, basically, this is the Mount of Olives. And it's really interesting that Luke puts this here. So this is at the beginning of the, the week known as the Passion Week. We see that Jesus is coming into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And indeed, when Jesus is betrayed, we find that he is too at the Mount of Olives. Indeed, these are kind of bookends on the Passion Week. And it's kind of interesting that within a week, he goes from being welcomed in as the conquering king to by the end being treated as a crucified criminal. At the beginning of this week, he is treated as a conquering king, um, but at the end, he is treated as a crucified criminal. And then it says he sent two of his disciples. And he says, this is verse 30, he says, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. Verse 31, if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. Let's break this down a little uh, some of you are like me, right? You, you've read this passage so much that you kind of just glance over it a lot, right? And especially this passage here appears in every gospel. So you read it in Matthew, you read it in Mark, and you read it in John as well. And so a lot of times what happens is we just glance over it and we're like, okay, yeah, that's a detail, right? Kind of like watching the History Channel. I don't know if you know this, today is, is June 6th. Uh, it's the 78th anniversary of the D-Day landings. And one of the things I love to do is I love to watch World War II history. And a lot of times I'll rewatch the same documentaries, but I won't pay attention as closely because I've heard a lot of the same information over and over and over again that every once in a while I'll be watching a similar documentary and then they'll say something new and I'll say, oh, wait a minute, this sounds interesting. Let me pay attention to it. This is one of those passages that this week I was kind of reading over it and then realized something. As Jesus uh, was talking to him, he says, go into the village where? In front of you. He says, go into the village in front of you. He doesn't say, hey, go back to the village we just passed by. He says, go to the village in front of you. Now you might say, well, this is, why is this interesting, Tyler, the, the fact that he uses front? The interesting part about this is if the village is in front of them, it means they have not come to it yet. And Jesus is saying, hey, listen, ahead of you there is a colt that is going to be tied, and it's, not going to be, it's never been ridden, it's never been broken, so grab that colt. You might say, well, what is the significance of that? The fact that Jesus knows that that's up ahead. And I think there's two possibilities for Jesus calling ahead. Uh, one of them, I believe, in my correct opinion, uh, to be right. And then one of them also is going to be a possibility, but a really good possibility. Uh, so the first one, how did Jesus know that ahead of them there would be a cult? It's possible that he tapped into his divine knowledge in order to understand that there was a cult ahead of him, right? We see this back in uh, the 
Samaritan woman, right? The woman at the well. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he asks her, he says, hey, can you send for your husband to come here? And she says, I actually am not married. And he goes, you're right. You've had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. To which then the woman at the well gives the best response, I think, in all of the Gospels to this, 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 this statement. She turns to Jesus and says, I perceive you to be some sort of prophet. <laughs> Because how in the world would Jesus know about the woman at the well unless he knew something supernatural that was not known at the time? So we do see that he ties into his divine knowledge every once in a while. However, I do think there's a second one, and actually it's the one that I I, I do ascribe to, and that is that Jesus understood Scripture. Jesus understood Scripture perfectly. And so whenever we see Jesus, right, like at the beginning of his ministry, he goes to his home synagogue, his home church. He comes into First Baptist Church, you know, and Jesus gets up and he's asked, hey, can you please uh, read something from the Torah, from, from the, the, the Old Testament? He opens up the Isaiah scroll, begins to read it, and then turns to him and says, this has been fulfilled within your hearing. In other words, Jesus not only knew Scripture, but understood his space, his place within Scripture perfectly. This was not an accident. Jesus was not surprised by anything that happens. Indeed, Jesus knew everything that was about to happen, which is why later on we'll read that he begins to weep over Jerusalem. Because here comes a conquering king into his city who is getting praises, right? And if you read Matthew, if you read Mark, and if you read John, we see that they begin to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. They lay down palm fronds uh, in front of him as a, a symbol of national identity with Israel. He gets all this, and then what does he do? He goes then and begins to weep over his city. The conquering king does not begin to weep over his city. I guarantee you the president, whenever he became president, did not go back into the uh, White House and begin to cry over the United States. What happens? They normally get filled with, with passion and zeal to go and do their work. Jesus knew exactly what was about to take place. He knew it perfectly. Why? Because he knew passages like uh, Isaiah 54, that he would have to suffer and die. And he also knows passages such as Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You see, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Sing aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, Jesus knew Scripture, and Jesus completely fulfilled Scripture. And so whenever he sits there and says, hey, go ahead, there's a cult there that's not been ridden, bring that back to me, he's not saying possibly there might be a cult. He's saying, I know there's a cult because it has been foretold hundreds of years ago. Why? Because I fulfill Scripture completely. Jesus was not surprised by any of this. And notice, too, that Jesus didn't just know that there would be a cult ahead. He also knew the response. Because he said the, he told the disciples, hey, listen, you're going to be asked, why are you untying the cult? And he says, tell that person that the Lord has need of it. And sure enough, the disciples go ahead, says, you know, someone comes out, the owners actually come out and say, 
Why are you untying this colt? And notice the response. The Lord has need of it. Now notice that phrase, the Lord. A couple weeks ago, uh, we were looking through the rich young ruler passage, uh, and I happened to uh, be up here, and I mentioned, I said, notice any time that someone ta- addresses Jesus by a title, notice the title, because that tells you everything about the, what that person believes about Jesus. Notice the disciples here, how they respond. They say, the Lord has need of it. The Lord has need of it. This is big later on here in this passage. So notice they bring the cult back and notice what they do. They throw their cloaks onto the cult. They actually set Jesus, the passage, they set Jesus on the cult and then he begins to ride in. And not only does he ride in, but notice that they put their cloaks on the ground so that way not to, uh, not to make sure Jesus is as clean as possible. I, I was confronted earlier uh, and said that I was wrong, but I'm going to use it anyway because I don't remember anything what we said. Um, but anyway, it reminded me of back in you know, some of the old black and white movies. I mentioned Casablanca because, I mean, Citizen Kane, this doesn't happen, but Casablanca is kind of a romantic movie. Right where you have a character, you have a, a guy, right, who's who's perhaps trying to impress a girl, and they come across a, a mud puddle, right? And what does the guy do? He takes off his jacket, and he puts it on the ground, so that way she walks over that mud puddle uh, and, and comes out the other side completely dry, completely clean. It's a sign of honor. It's a it's a sign of importance. And really, if you look at this here, it's exactly. Here. They are trying to show Jesus proper respect, proper authority. Why? Because they recognize who he is. He is the Lord. He is not the Lord because they believe so. He is not the Lord because someone has, has declared it you know, nationally. He is the Lord because the Lord has set him up to this position. As a matter of fact, later on you see that he be, they begin to quote Psalm 118, uh, and they begin to rejoice. It says that they begin to sing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They understand that the reason why Jesus is Lord is because God had ordained for that to take place. It was nothing that they did, but everything that the Lord had already planned, he had already determined would take place. You see, the disciples here had a proper response to Jesus Christ. They knew who he was. He is the Lord, and therefore deserving of respect and of praise. And they begin to sing that, Great is he, blessed is the king, who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They begin to sing and shout his praises. Now, I, I think this is interesting. Luke does not mention any of the others, the crowds. Notice what he says. He says uh, in this passage, and as they were drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, this is verse 37, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice. Luke does not make mention of the entire crowd. He only mentions the disciples in this passage. Why? Because this ties directly into the last passage we looked at last week. This is the proper response. The king, or the servants who properly uh, serve the king, this is their true response, is praise and worship. They begin to praise the Lord, and they begin to serve him. That is the proper response of a disciple. 
Now, we will look at the consequences of rejecting Jesus. And we're actually going to start two verses, perhaps, before your Bible has a break for the weeping of Jerusalem. But I think it's important that we start and get context to understand why Jesus begins to weep. In verse 39, it says, And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, remember earlier I said, pay attention to titles, right? What people call Jesus by that tells you everything, who they believe Jesus is. Notice the Pharisees here do not say Lord. Notice they say teacher. Very similar to the rich young ruler, teacher, rabbi. In other words, Jesus, you are not Lord. You are merely a spiritual figure. And notice what he tells Jesus to do. Rebuke your disciples. Tell them to hush. They need to be quiet. Now, we know from the context of Matthew, Mark, and John that there were also some zealots here in the crowd that were uh, basically trying to put Jesus as some national king that would eventually come and take over Rome, right? They laid down the palm fronds. Basically, them laying down palm fronds, that was the national symbol of Israel. It'd be the equivalent of us coming, you know, the, the president coming down and we lay down bald eagles. I understand that that's kind of preposterous, but, you know, under, you know, just get, get with me here. You know, laying down bald eagles and you know, riding up, right? It's a national symbol of, hey, this is our guy. This is our American guy who's coming down. They're saying this is our Jewish king who is going to come and overthrow, overthrow these Roman Gentiles. And so here the Pharisees come up and they say, teacher, one, notice it's wrong how, what they address him as. But then they say, rebuke your disciples. Get them to hush. For one, there's a Roman garrison right at the temple that could come down at any moment and wipe out anybody. So that might be one of the reasons why they did. But notice, too, the response of the Pharisees. When the disciples notice, when they recognize Jesus as Lord, what do they do? They sing praises. Notice when the Pharisees identify Jesus as teacher. They ask him to be silent. You see, those are the two responses. Rejoicing, telling everyone, or silence. Those are our responses that we have. But this passage does not end here. Because Jesus answers them and tells them, verse 40, he says, I answered, I, he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Indeed, all of creation would cry out with the praise and worship that is due to our Lord and our King. The Lord is not, it does not require us to praise and worship for praise and worship to be due Him. All of creation sings out with praise to our king. But this isn't the end. You see then Jesus, after hearing this from the Pharisees and, and telling the Pharisees, no, praise and worship will be heard. Verse 41, we see that he begins to draw near and he saw the city and notice what he does. He weeps over it. Now, uh, whenever I was a full-time teacher, I got to teach through the Gospels. And my students uh, loathed the fact that I made them memorize Scripture. 
Uh, and every week when it come to scripture memorization time for me to assign them a scripture to read for the next week or to memorize for the next week, they would always come to me and say, Mr. Pierce, Mr. Pierce, can we please memorize John 11.35 this week? Yeah, a couple of you got it. The reason why is because it's the shortest verse. And, uh, and what does it say? Jesus wept. There are only two times in, in the Gospels that Jesus weeps. It is in John eleven thirty five, and it is here in Luke nineteen forty one that Jesus weeps. And notice why Jesus weeps. Notice what he says, verse forty two, saying, "Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes." For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Notice the reason why Jesus weeps is not because of the circumstances he is about to face. The reason why Jesus weeps is because the people have rejected God. The people have rejected the Lord. And we see here that because of this, all the consequences that are going to take place will eventually come upon Jerusalem. And he tells them just this, this is exactly what's going to happen. You see, Jesus never weeps in Scripture because of his own circumstance. He always weeps because of the faithlessness of those in his audience, right? John eleven thirty five. 35, Lazarus has died. As a matter of fact, Jesus actually waits a day before he comes to the crowd. And when he gets to the crowd, they say, Jesus, you are too late. There is nothing that you could do. Why? Because he was alive, but is now dead. And since he is dead, listen, you could have made him well when he was alive, but he's gone. There's nothing you can do. And Jesus begins to weep because they do not have faith. Jesus begins to weep here. Why? Because Jerusalem does not have faith. Because Israel does not have faith. Because they have kept silent. Because they do not accept Jesus as Lord. And because of that, we see here the consequences of their actions. Just like in the parable of the ten minus before, where we see that uh, the king punishes the servants for, for not properly doing their due diligence as was commanded. We see here that Jerusalem will be laid to waste. As a matter of fact, the passage says not one stone will be left upon one another. Everything will be completely destroyed. And not just that, but the very nucleus of society, the family, verse 44, you and your children within you will be taken away. Everything will be completely and utterly destroyed. Why? Because they remained silent. Because they did not acknowledge Jesus as Lord. You see, here at the festive entry of Jesus to Jerusalem, does he pause to lament the events that are soon to take place? However, the focus is not his suffering but the consequences of Jerusalem responding like the Pharisees, complete and utter rejection of Jesus as God's Son. And so I mentioned this at the beginning, but I want to mention this again. What is our response to Jesus? What is our response to Jesus? Do we praise and worship, 
or do we stay silent? Now, I don't mean this as just a, a music thing, right? Some of us aren't blessed with as good a voice as others. We don't project it as loud because we don't want to scare people away. But what does praise and worship include other than music? Profession. Right? We sing the song, Christ, Our Hope in Life and Death, which is a confession song. Unto the days, what will we sing? Christ, He lives. Christ, He lives. Do we confess to one another Jesus as Lord and Savior? Do we confess to the outside world Jesus as Lord and Savior? Here the disciples are in full view of everyone, singing praises, quoting Psalm 118, saying, Here is the King. Do we do this in our day-to-day -day lives? From First Baptist Crawfordville, does Crawfordville know that Jesus is not merely just teacher, but that Jesus is Lord? Does Wakulla County know that Jesus is Lord? Does Florida know that Jesus is Lord? Does the United States know that Jesus is Lord? Does the world know that Jesus is Lord? We must not remain silent. We must sing out. We must cry out. Why? Because praise and worship will be due Him. But that does not mean that we can sit on the sideline and stop. We must go forward. We must ring out praise. We must ring out worship. And we must tell people who Jesus is. Because let's face it, we live, as I said earlier, in the Bible Belt. If you talk to anybody in Walmart, they'll tell you they believe in Jesus. But if you ask them who they believe Jesus is, that's where you're going to get different answers. See, the Pharisees believed Jesus. They knew he was a person. But they did not believe him as Lord. Do we proclaim Jesus as Lord? And then let's, let's think about this whenever we draw this into our own lives. Do we truly praise and worship Jesus for what he has done for us? So I'll be honest with you, there are times where it is difficult for me to praise and worship. I mentioned earlier that I'm trying to buy a house, and earlier this week we had some issues with some loans. The bank basically uh, messed up something. And I've got to be honest with you, my crumbs started coming out. I was a little mad. And it was hard for me to praise and worship Jesus in that moment. But that's where my sin conflicts where I sat there and said that surely nothing, just as those people at Lazarus' funeral, or after Lazarus had died, Jesus said, you'd come earlier, something would happen. But it's too late now. That's where I was just like one of them. Lord, if we'd gotten the right information to the bank first, there'd been, everything would have been changed. Instead of understanding that the Lord has us and keeps us and sustains us, this is a day-to-day -day exercise that we go through, whether it be here in church where we see one another and we, we're thankful to see one another, we greet one another, or whether this is we go to El Jalisco or Myra Jean's right and perhaps it's a little bit more crowded and we don't get our queso in time, as, or at least what we think should be in time, or whether this be going to work and having that boss or having that coworker, or having that so-called friend come up to you Surely, Lord, if you had dealt with this sooner, everything would be okay. 
Do we truly praise and worship Jesus in our own lives? So as we, we close here, we must respond to the passage. We must respond to the text. Do we praise and worship Jesus as Lord and Savior in our lives, in our families, and in our community? Do we truly do this? We're going to pray, and then we're going to go into a time of invitation. And time of invitation is actually a time to respond to Scripture. It's for us to reflect. It's for us to see what Scripture has to say and apply it to our lives. Let us be in prayerful consideration for how we can be better followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, Lord. We, we praise you. We honor you. We thank you for allowing us to be here. Father, we praise you for uh, family, be able to come together and be able to uh, greet one another with, 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 with who you are, Father, with, with building one another up because of everything you've done for us. Lord, we pray as we go into this time of invitation, Father, you would convict us of sin. That, Father, you'd show us where we fall short, not so that way we can feel guilty, not so that way we can get some sort of emotional response, but so that way we can be better followers of you. Lord, we love you and we praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, we're also, uh, so if we're going to stand here and sing, there is a fountain here in just a second. This is your time to respond. Like I said, be in prayer. Uh, be praying for one another that are here in this room, perhaps, that are dealing with stuff in their lives as they, they wrestle with that. Thank you for joining us for this podcast from First Baptist Church of Crawfordville. You can find more information and follow us on Facebook or visit our website, crawfordvillefbc.com.